Hello, my name is Daniel Cowder and welcome to the inaugural This Spake Daniel Cowder podcast, aka me reading aloud my most recent essay, Notes on an Apocalypse Found in Walmart. Here we go. Recently I've been getting into supermarket magazine racks. Whenever I'm in Walmart or HEB, I like to swing by and check them out to see what the people are digging on. I especially like that the selection is limited and non-literary. There's none of your The Atlantic or The New Yorker or any of that bourgeois twaddle. Supermarkets open a door onto another world of reading. Romance paperbacks, almanacs, YouTube star makeup tips, prosperity gospel preachers, duck dynasty tie-ins back when that was a thing. I don't know what the thing is now. And when it comes to magazines, we're talking barbecue, lifestyle, home improvement, video games, weight loss, vintage cars, guns, more guns, and then more guns. Perhaps it's different in San Francisco and the supermarkets there are all selling magazines about how to make your own kombucha. I wouldn't know. But in Texas, they sure do sell a lot of magazines about guns. Anyway, there I was staring at the cover of a glossy magazine that combined the themes of eating meat and survivalism when I realised that I really ought to look into the supermarket magazine business a lot more closely. Although none of the subjects were of any interest to me, they obviously meant something to my fellow humans who, for accumulations of words and pictures associated with their favourite hobbies printed on glossy paper, were willing to shell out about 5 to $7 a month. What did they see in there? What might I see if only I took the time to look? Clearly, I had a moral duty to find out, and so resolved to start buying magazines on topics that I had no interest in, but which other people liked. And with that, I welcome you to the first instalment of Supermarket Magazine Review, in which we will be taking a look at Prepper Survival Guide. Now, I remember when doomsday prepping was a freaky underground subculture, the kind of thing I might have pitched to Bizarre magazine at the dawn of my literary career. Who knows, maybe I did pitch it, alongside top ten most disgusting parasites of the human body. I certainly can't recall, although I do remember that Bizarre had recently done a feature on tapeworms, guinea worms, and other body-inhabiting worms, so my startlingly original idea was never commissioned. But that was long ago, back in the days of dial-up, before prepping was defanged, monetized, and absorbed into pop culture by the National Geographic Channel, which broadcast several seasons of doomsday preppers between 2011 and 2014. Thus was the paranoid anticipation of the end reduced to a quirky personality trait that could earn you a spot on a reality TV show, akin to being a curmudgeonly pawn shop owner in Florida, a goth cat whisperer in L.A., or an upper-middle-class tiny home hunter in Washington State. The ecosystem of shitty products hawked by the likes of Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos via their media channels was just as dedicated to the accumulation of capital, although less likely to be acquired by the Walt Disney Company. And now the racks in Walmart revealed that there was also an array of glossy publications dedicated to the prepper lifestyle. But who was the target audience? Full-on gas masks and iodine tablets and the bunker types? Or the merely apocalypse curious? Never having read one of these magazines, I had no way of knowing. Of the options on offer, I selected Prepper Survival Guide because of number one, the directness of the title, number two, the 22 gear guide advertised on the cover, which I hoped would advise me on which lethal weapons I ought to buy, 
And three, the promise contained in the red circle below the title. Critical tips to stay alive. Now that's a tagline. Once home, I put the magazine down and promptly forgot about it. But the next day, I spotted it on the wee table where I keep my various remote controls and resolved to take it to the YMCA, where I would fix my eyes on it while strolling on the treadmill for an hour. Now, at first I did feel a little bit sheepish to be reading Prepper Survival Guide in public, but then I realised that this probably made me more relatable to more of the people present in the gym than my usual, more highbrow reading material. Perhaps I would even make some new friends. Cool magazine, bro. Duly emboldened, I resolved to channel my inner Cheryl Sandberg and lean in. So, rather than rush to open the magazine and dive right into the world of prepping, I decided instead to spend some time staring at the cover, penetrating the layers of signs it contained, performing a deep Umberto Eco-style semiotic analysis while my feet moved rhythmically back and forth on the treadmill. This is what I saw. A burly, bearded man wearing a puffy jacket and backpack holds up a flashlight while scowling at the reader with great intensity. Behind him, on the left, stand two unfinished tower blocks, a car and a puddle, while on the right there is yet another unfinished tower block and a burning building that lights up the night sky with a deep orange glow. Clearly, something bad has happened in his world, a catastrophe big enough to destroy cities and infrastructure, and this lone survivor is now left to fend for himself in a world without pity. The towers, in fact, reminded me of the landscape in the 1980s ultra-violence classic Fist of the North Star, a much-celebrated manga in Japan. Fist of the North Star follows the solitary path of assassin Kenshiro as he wanders through a post-apocalyptic world of ruined cities populated by motorbike-riding psychotics and roaming bands of punks who like nothing more than to steal food and water from women, children and the elderly, who they also murder for kicks. Kenshiro is a master of Hakuto Shinken, a martial art which enables him to destroy his enemies simply by tapping on acupressure points, which causes their heads and bodies to explode. These eruptions of bone, flesh and flying eyeballs are invariably accompanied by grotesque sound effects, my favourite being blablomsh. This wet sound, like a sack of overripe fruit erupting from the inside, has stayed with me throughout the 33 years that have passed since I first encountered it in Fist of the North Star issue 3. Although sadly, in the 2021 edition, the sound effect is rendered as the drier, skin-ripping, bone-splintering spack. Anyway, I mention all this because it felt as though Prepper Survival Guide was sending me a subliminal message that it contained Fist of the North Star levels of ultraviolence. And yet, when I studied the cover a little more closely, I could see that the burly man's clothing looked clean in the way that only new clothes can, as if he had just purchased them via contactless payment at an REI superstore. And also that he was wearing a Fitbit-style digital tracker around his right wrist, suggesting not only that the telecommunications network was still active, but that at least some of his favourite apps were still being maintained by Gen Z and millennial workers tapping away at their MacBooks on a gleaming tech campus in San Francisco. But enough of the cover. 
it was time to explore the mysteries within. Upon opening the magazine, I was welcomed by a two-page spread of a lone, bearded hipster wearing a backpack or striding across a mountain stream. It looked like an ad, but was not. Although, as the picture clearly came from a digital photo library, perhaps somewhere else in this fierce and beautiful world, it is. From there, I arrived at the contents page, where I discovered that Prepper Survival Guide didn't just have articles and features, but different sections that were as neatly labelled as the canned goods in a survivalist's basement. Urban survival, wilderness survival, security and defence, personal survival, gear and gadgets. A letter from the editor, Jim Cobb, informed me that this was the 14th issue and that the goal of the magazine was to keep my family safe during a disaster or crisis. A lofty and noble goal, no doubt. But what kind of crisis? What level of disaster? The lead story focused on a climate disaster. The title, Brrr, Staying Warm During Power Outages, was surprisingly peppy, but I didn't read too much into that. To set this in, the piece referenced an event in my own experience. Three back-to-back winter storms swept across the United States in February 2021, wrote Ceci Hampson Ellis. The unprecedented cold coupled with inadequately winterized utility infrastructure and Texas' isolated power grid ultimately caused a major crisis, leaving more than 4 million homes and businesses without power. Yes, friends, I was there. Although I cannot say that I suffered very much. It helped that I was deeply familiar with the cold from all those long Russian winters, of course. But still more helpful was the fact that I lived two streets down from a substation which powers a hospital and so is on a protected part of the grid. In fact, it actually got a bit awkward talking to friends and colleagues who were all freezing in their homes while I basked in warmth and watched the Criterion channel on my new 66-inch OLED TV. Beyond uttering expressions of solidarity, there wasn't much I could do, and eventually I grew embarrassed by the empty rattle of my own platitudes. In the end, I just told people I was going to stop offering them useless wishes that things would get better soon, which I think they appreciated. As for the content of brrrr, staying warm during power outages, well, one day during the Great Texas Freeze, I went out for a stroll on the melting ice, where I bumped into my neighbour, Crazy Dave, a retired Vietnam vet who mends lawnmowers in his driveway. Crazy Dave told me that the last time he'd experienced such extreme cold in central Texas was in 1952. So I didn't expect to see a repeat snowstorm anytime soon, and this year's much-hyped ice storm sequel was indeed a complete anticlimax. Nor can I say that there was much in the article that was revelatory. The advice was all pretty much common sense, e.g. don't run your car engine in in an enclosed space. That said, Ms. Hampson Ellis did provide some best practices for when to open and close your curtains to guarantee that you extract maximum warmth from the sun. It was too boring to follow, so I cannot repeat it here, but I would certainly read that part of the article again if I ever did find myself in a snow-induced power outage for several days. Or rather, I would remember that the magazine had contained that bit and then regret that I had thrown it out as there was obviously no way that I was going to hang on to Prepper Survival Guide in anticipation of a new Ice Age arriving. But if brrrr, staying warm during power outages was disappointingly practical, then the next article, 
small space prepping, which explored the challenges of preparing for a catastrophe when you live in an apartment, was quite surprising. It appeared to come from the Marie Kondo School of Prepping and began with tips on how to clear your life of clutter so that you could free up maximum space for your survival supplies. After that, however, the advice swiftly entered eccentric territory, ranging from such helpful suggestions as replacing the DVDs in your entertainment centre with food and water to storing extra pots and pans in your microwave. Just don't forget to take them out before turning on the heat. It was all fantastically inconvenient and pointless, leaving unanswered the obvious question. What kind of crisis was so great that it justified you turning your apartment into a survival bunker? But which was also likely to be over so quickly that the extremely limited number of things you could store in two or three rooms would see you through to the end of it. This was crisis as cosplay, but a bizarre hair-shirt-wearing form of cosplay that would turn your apartment into a joyless cave crammed with unused survival gear. Indeed, I found it hard to believe that even the author of Small Space Prepping took the article seriously, any more than I had taken my unwritten article about parasites of the human body seriously. It was words on a page, at best a thought experiment, but not a very good one. This was not what I expected from a magazine called Prepper Survival Guide. I wanted paranoia, a whiff of David Koresh's buried school bus Armageddon bunker. More than that, I wanted dark knowledge, how to execute the perfect headshot, recipes for fertiliser bombs, top ten trap placement tips, so that when murderous gangs invaded your homestead, as they inevitably would, they would trigger the iron jaws with serrated teeth that would sever their legs below the knee. I had read Fist of the North Star. I knew how dangerous the post-apocalyptic world would be. The roads Kinshiro walked were littered with the limbs, eyeballs and entrails of foes he had dispatched, even though he never went looking for a fight. Yet despite the cover, with its scowling tough guy standing against a backdrop of ruined buildings, Prepper Survival Guide did not seem to be very hardcore. Rather, it was focused on micro-crises, mere inconveniences even. Ice on the roads? Here's some driving advice. Camping in the woods? Here's how to set up a tarp correctly. Perhaps the problem was that I was reading Prepper Survival Guide in sequence like a book. It's normal to jump about in magazines and go straight to the articles that interest you the most. So I decided to skip the Eagle Scout stuff and go straight to the violence, security and defence instead. The first article in this section, Standing Guard, began promisingly enough, with retired Army Sergeant Rick Cox drawing an unfavourable comparison between modern humans and a species of bird. Humans, Cox observed, have grown soft and expect the rule of law, R-O-L, to keep them safe, whereas Canadian geese always charge one member of the flock with the lonely task of keeping an eye out for threats. Cox was especially disappointed by the complacency of the prepper community who, despite their professed interest in anticipating catastrophes, seemed to believe that ROL will continue during bad times or at least that they won't have any issues. But, he asked, what if there is total societal collapse? What then, eh? Eh? Cox's advice was, one, be part of an armed militia, 
2. Assign some members to lookout duties. 3. Assign other members to patrol your territory. And 4. Make sure everybody is always packing heat. Unfortunately, Cox did not get into the details of exactly how you would find a militia to join. He just seemed to assume that if you were reading Prepper Survival Guide, then you already moved in those circles. However, as Small Space Prepping had made clear, some preppers preferred playing to planning and had not thought very far into the future. But just how could you tell a good militia run by firm but fair ex-soldiers from a psycho militia run by rapists and lunatics? In Fist of the North Star, the psycho militias are marked out by their weird haircuts, ATVs, motorbikes and tattoos. But there is one instance in which Kenshiro has to do battle with a group of normal-looking military types who just happen to worship their commanding officer as a living god. What if you accidentally joined that group because they seemed disciplined, only to find that you were then asked to murder a bunch of women and children? But that's not the end of it. Let's say you're a thoroughly modern 21st century person, bereft of the knowledge and skills that might make you useful in a post-apocalyptic world. Instead, you sell vintage clothing on Etsy, or know a lot about influencer marketing. I don't see why a militia would have any reason to welcome you into their heavily armed ranks if you had nothing to offer them in return, unless they decided to make you some kind of whipping boy whose job was to taste irradiated turnips before the leader ate them or you were asked, tasked with running through a forest filled with bear traps to clear a path for your more valuable colleagues. Cox, however, did not seem too worried by the thought that the reader might not have a clue where he or she could find a good militia to join. He ended his article with a question that he couldn't be bothered to answer. If you don't have the personnel to maintain that level of watchfulness, what can you do to get there? Doing anything less increases your risks tremendously. Although it was by no means a good article, Standing Guard was at least in line with my expectations of a magazine dedicated to prepping. Alas, the next piece, Hands Off, Countering Grabs and Holds, was once again disappointingly prosaic. Rather than build on Cox's demand that everybody plan for the total collapse of the social order, the author of this article instead provided mere tips on what to do in the event you are grabbed during an unfortunate street encounter. Having once been grabbed in an unfortunate street encounter myself in the southern Russian city of Astrakhan, this theme was of interest. In that instance, I had responded by relaxing my stance and staring through the angry drunk standing in front of me, as if, despite all the yelling and yanking on my shirt, he wasn't really there. This existential counterattack left him perplexed and unsure of himself. Why was I just standing there doing nothing? Why didn't I react? Why did I look so bored? I cannot say how long the encounter lasted. Probably it was somewhere between 30 seconds to a minute. As I was waiting to see if he would take a swing at me, it felt like rather a long time. Yet how long did it last for him, that eternal moment in which he began to suspect that he was not in fact an actual Russian drunk, but merely an unconvincing dream of a drunk that had somehow convinced itself that it knew love and rage like a real boy. We will never know. Regardless, once he had stared long enough into the abyss of blankness and boredom that he saw in my eyes, he loosened his grip and walked away, 
no doubt hoping to find someone else he could rail at, but whose more conventionally defensive reaction would confirm that he really did exist after all. I admit that this technique is not for everyone. As for the advice preferred by Wason Johnny Tsai in Hands Off, Countering Grabs and Holds, it was what I believe scientists refer to as uh, a bit shit. For instance, I immediately took issue with Tsai's assertion that in any altercation, all you want is for the person to let you go. No. What you want is for your assailant to let go and then retreat. Tsai's advice was the self-defense version of apartment prepping, plausible only so long as you did not ask what happened next. For instance, in one photo sequence, a skinny blonde girl named Zondra appeared to escape from a headlock by karate chopping her lanky male attacker's moustache. The final photo showed her attacker apparently stunned by this move, staggering away, his eyes looking downwards as if he was wondering whether he really wanted to risk getting karate chopped in the moustache again. Of course, what he would actually do next is turn around and attack, as he was about 12 inches taller than Zondra and had the obvious height, weight and strength advantage. Training is critical, wrote Sai, which is true enough, but only up to a point. I did agree, however, that it was important you never allow yourself to be dragged to the ground. I remember the sage words of a veteran of my hometown Dunfermline's nightclub fight scene. Get them on the ground and then kick them really hard two or three times and then stop. If you keep going, the adrenaline will surge and they'll come back up and attack you. By this point, I was 40 minutes closer to death than I had been when I began my semiotic analysis of the cover. And I was beginning to think that Prepper Survival Guide was a total waste of time, and not even in an amusing way. Suddenly I remembered that there was an anthology of posthumously published Charles Bukowski poems on my Kindle app. Every now and then I would pop a few of his poems like Tic Tacs while on the treadmill. Perhaps I should switch over to that. It's not that I think Bukowski was a great poet. I'm not even sure he was a good poet. But he did have a knack for capturing a certain destroyed bachelor vibe that made me think of my youth in Moscow probably because I read post office while I was living there, rather than any propensity towards alcoholism or betting on horses. However, the next article, Home Field Advantage, Defence Options Around the House, sounded sufficiently promising that I decided to keep going. I was particularly inspired by the sidebar on page 67 that contained a photo of a lamp above the caption, A heavy lamp can work if you unplug it first. That matter-of-fact statement of the obvious set the tone for an astonishingly lazy article, the body of which was a room-by-room inventory of objects you could lob at an intruder as they chased you through the house. I was impressed by the author's inclusive language because, as we all know, women are just as likely as men to break into houses and commit violent crimes. The article was actually quite funny in an ultra-dry way. Yet at no point did the author, Eric Winchester, two decades in the security and investigation fields, give any indication that he was joking. In the kitchen, and consider using a knife to defend yourself, or perhaps the cartoon classic of walloping an attacker with a heavy frying pan. A hot cup of tea is good for throwing in the face. Photo frames make decent missiles, while pokers are great for poking. 
And if you're in the bathroom, then why not wrap a towel around a bar of soap and whack the intruder in the head? And so on and so on. The article was also quite fascinating in a strange way. Just as I had gazed blankly into the eyes of my street attacker in Astrakhan, so home field advantage, defence options around the house, injected a related blankness into my soul via its total nothingness. Well, that's not fair. It was not completely nothing. Winchester did caution against trying to turn your hairspray canister into a blowtorch using a cigarette lighter, as you need fine motor skills to operate those two objects, and that's one of the first things to go when you're under a high degree of stress. He was also adamant that, contrary to internet myth, wasp spray is not a weapon. I was surprised, however, that he did not suggest investing in a baseball bat and leaving it by the side of the bed so you can easily grab it and crack the skulls of intruders, as this is a highly economical form of self-defence. I purchased mine at a garage sale for $5. I had now been on the treadmill for 55 minutes, and the mild emptiness I had felt prior to reading Home Field Advantage Defence Options Around the House was now a raging existential void. What was this magazine? Why was this magazine? How was it that the articles were so lazy, that so much of the advice they offered was so banal? Yet I asked these questions more in sorrow than in anger. Having learned the hard way how badly even prestige venues can pay, I knew that prepper survival guides' rates were likely pretty low, and so the authors would be incentivized to write quickly without doing much research. Several of them had websites, services, or books to plug. Ah, the magical currency of exposure. But overall, Prepper Survival Guide lacked conviction. I wasn't even sure how it was that they had made it as far as 14 issues. In the age of the internet, when ultra-hardcore apocalyptic advice is never more than a click or two away, this magazine was like a holdover from the Bo Derek and Bolero riding a horse naked school of disaster preparedness. Prepper Survival Guide had taken the dignity of thinking that you were living in a significant historical moment, the thrill of believing that you were permanently teetering on the edge of doom, the fun of getting ever closer to the big wave of annihilation, and the febrile pleasure pain of a permanently overstimulated erogenous thanatotic drive, only to turn it all into a handful of unpersuasive articles about camping and self-defence for which it then charged you $9.95 plus tax. My time on the treadmill was almost over, but still I felt that I had to retrieve something from this lost hour. Bukowski didn't require any concentration to read, so I opened the Kindle app and read a poem about how great it was when a chick dug his work and then offered herself to him. And then another one, in which he satirised a bunch of beat poets I hadn't read and didn't care about. No wonder these things weren't published until after he was dead. It was the coup de grace of nothingness. I stepped off the treadmill and walked out into the cold, dark, unwelcoming night.